0: This evening I'd like to speak about loving-kindness. The Buddha was once asked by one of his disciples, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion? And the Buddha answered, he said, no, it wouldn't be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion. Imagine how it would be to begin every sitting and to begin every walking with a very very clear sense that this time is dedicated to nothing but developing loving kindness and compassion. Imagine how it would be to enter into the variety of contacts and interactions in our life, the variety of our relationships, the places we meet people, with that same intention that this time is dedicated to the development of loving kindness and compassion. Imagine how it would be to approach ourselves As we meet our inner world, our bodies, our thoughts, our memories, our plans, the spectrum of our emotions. And within that meeting, have a sense that what is of primary importance is that meeting is pervaded with loving kindness and compassion. To me, this statement of the Buddha is really a very pivotal statement because it invites us to really honestly explore what it is that we aspire to in our practice, in our meditative journey, in our life. It asks us to reflect on what it is on the most essential level we feel ourselves to be really dedicated to. And then it asks us to look at our attitudes in our relationships, the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we receive the people and all of the events that come into our world. And it asks us to look again and to look anew at our own minds and hearts. And the Buddha went on to say that where there is goodness of heart, there is wisdom. And where there is wisdom, there is goodness of heart. Now, loving kindness, one of the paramis, one of the noble qualities of heart, of mind, clearly this is not something that we can talk ourselves into. And it's not something we can pretend. You know, if you found yourself in a very difficult encounter with someone, you know, to smile at them through gritted teeth, you know, pretending there's loving kindness where in reality there's rage or estrangement, it does us no good. For most of us, to really understand loving kindness or to find a way of being in our life where there truly is unconditional friendliness and love, This really requires quite a depth of inner transformation, a genuine change within our own hearts and minds. It's a genuine kind of transformation of some of the familiar pathways of anger and fear and alienation and self-protection. And these changes and these transformations are born of insight. They're born of understanding. I think I mentioned when I first started teaching, you know, I I was, like I was a hindrance snob, I was also a loving-kindness snob, you know, and I used to kind of tack ten minutes of metta on to the last day of a retreat, you know, kind of a sweet way of ending, I would think, you know, everybody would go away feeling good, you know, and that was kind of my sense of loving-kindness at that time, it was sort of about feeling good. And, you know, having a sort of sweet, a sort of sentimental kind of feeling. And then I actually began to explore this path of loving kindness in more depth and realized how much insight, how much understanding, how much really radical transformation is required to find that genuine freedom from ill will and hostility and estrangement. And I found myself being much less dualistic about, you know, the, and, and certainly much less hierarchical, sensing, you know, that insight practice is a kind of supreme, the ultimate, and everything else is sort of very secondary. To actually comprehend the, the kind of great, Transformation that is asked of us to find true loving kindness and compassion in our world. Stephen Mitchell once said that the path of love and the path of insight lead to the same garden. And if I would describe that garden that the path of love and the path of insight leads to, I would think of it as a garden of freedom. Loving kindness really rests upon a very deep understanding of what pain is, of what suffering and what alienation is. And it also rests upon a very equally deep understanding about the ways to bring about the end of pain and suffering and estrangement. And most of us really don't need that much convincing about the power of loving-kindness. If we have ever, even once in our life, been on the receiving end of unconditional love, we will have appreciated how rare that is. And it possibly would have been a very pivotal experience in our life. The times when we have been on the receiving end of anger and hatred and resentment and blame, these have also been pivotal experiences in our life. I think what we see in ourselves is how our potential for hatred and our potential for love live side by side within us. Our potential for fear and our potential for trust live side by side within us. In a way, we see that our potential to cause suffering and our potential to heal or to end suffering also live side by side within us. What loving kindness is, it is really a quality of devotion, a quality of commitment, where we really make our commitment to bringing about the end of suffering. We make our commitment to healing, division, and separation. And that commitment is very real because it means really taking the care of our hearts and to somehow learn to release ourselves from the pathways of anger and confusion and fear and blame that so much erode, the trust and the compassion and the understanding that we treasure. My sense is that the greatest disease, the greatest illness of our time, Is the disease of separation and alienation. The separation and alienation that exists between people, between communities, between cultures, between different faiths. I think this question of alienation and separation is both a personal question and it's a very global question. That separation, the division between I and you, between us and them, is very rarely a neutral separation. It's in that gap, in that, that schism between I and you, that is where mistrust and fear and suspicion and hatred grow. Is a saying that you can only hate from a distance and that you can only love through intimacy and understanding. I think it is probably evident to all of us that the greatest acts of violence and harm are born of the hearts and minds of those who feel most alienated and most disconnected. So when we make a commitment to nurturing loving kindness and compassion, it is really an inner commitment that we make to ourselves to release the schisms and the divisions and the places of disconnection that exist in our own life. Now, this sounds terrific in the abstract, but it is really not about the abstract. You know, is there anyone here who doesn't have people that they struggle with, that they feel that they've mistrusted, who they've kind of cast out of their life, where there is not a kind of a, a call or an invitation for some healing and for, and for releasing the kind of painfulness of estrangement and, and blame and division. It reminds me a couple of years ago here on a retreat, some of you might have been here when a you know, gentleman in the yogis told us a story about loving kindness about an elderly man who went to church and the pastor was giving the sermon on forgiving your enemies and forgiving those who've harmed you. And and the man looked really puzzled for a time and then he put up his hand and he says, well, what if you don't have any enemies? You know, what if there isn't anybody you dislike? And the pastor said, how can that be? How can it be that there's no one that you struggle with? He said, the bums are all dead. (laughs) I mean, that's too late, isn't it? We don't want to wait for that. We don't want to wait till the bums are all dead or we're dead. You know, we're kind of missing a moment here of possibility. We're missing a moment of invitation. To release estrangement we also need to release its cause. Now, both loving kindness and compassion, both in their realization and in their cultivation, they are essentially altruistic. You know, they are reaching and cultivating a a warmth and an intimacy and a forgiveness and and the tenderness that is possible for each of us. And it is also a reaching for and an exploration of what it means to embody those qualities in every moment of our lives. But because something is altruistic does not mean that it is idealistic. You know, if we were to take upon ourselves a mission to heal the world... You know, to save all beings from suffering. To end all conflict and division. Well, you know, that is such a big bite, isn't it? I mean, if that was our goal and our demand, we would be immediately discouraged. We would probably not even begin because it would feel just too big to embrace. More the altruism of loving-kindness and compassion, is about understanding and the willingness to understand how we might change and transform our heart and our mind of the moment. Because changing and transforming our heart and mind of the moment is to change our world. All the moments when we're irritated, All the moments when we're judgmental, when we're annoyed, when we feel invaded, intruded upon, when we feel resistant. This is where we practice changing our heart and mind of the moment. Loving kindness in this tradition was originally taught as an antidote to fear. Discovering a way of being inwardly and in our lives, where our hearts and then also our words, our actions, our relationships, our choices, are not governed by fear. It takes wisdom to really see and acknowledge the power of fear in our life and in our world, and that the offspring of fear is inevitably alienation and mistrust. We could ask where there is harm without fear. I must admit to being really surprised when I read an article about a couple of towns that have made it a law that every household in the town has to own a gun. How extraordinary. An extraordinary way to live. To, uh, to invite fear into your home in that sense. Just as genuine loving kindness is unconditional, I think our commitment to our devotion to loving kindness must be also unconditional. And for many of us, this is a little bit of a leap of faith. I know it has been a leap of faith for me. Because my sense is that if we approach loving kindness and compassion with a, a devotion and a commitment that is kind of lukewarm and half hearted, then our loving kindness and compassion is also going to be lukewarm and half hearted. You know, if we feel inspired to offer and receive people in our world with a, a kind of half baked loving kindness, or, or, or we're willing to offer loving kindness to only the, those that we love and care for, but You know, maybe not those who really annoy us. Mostly then, the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is in some way going to leave our hearts untouched. And I think we see that bitterness and fear and anger are mostly the outcome of the way our hearts are guided. And loving kindness and compassion and understanding are also the outcome of how our hearts are guided. And the seeds of fear and anger and alienation mostly grow in our unwillingness to pay attention to them. And we're often unwilling to pay attention to anger or to fear or to mistrust because they're difficult. They're They're unpleasant and often they really kind of are not really that flattering, mostly, how we see them. If we approach loving kindness or even approach the people in our world that we struggle with, with the loving kindness that has conditions or demands that it should produce a result and guarantee us an undisturbed life, then mostly we'll be discouraged because then we can misuse loving kindness as a way to make us feel better (laughs) rather than to really... Cultivate understanding and heal estrangement. Wholehearted dedication is the essence of loving kindness and compassion, and it is a leap of faith. There's a Nazruddin story where Nazruddin, the kind of Sufi, wise fool, his house was on fire. So he ran up to his roof for safety. And there he was precariously perched on the roof with his friends gathered in the street below, holding a stretched out blanket for him and shouting, Jump, Mullah, jump. Oh, no, I won't, said the Mullah. I know you fellows. If I jump, you'll pull the blanket away just to make a fool of me. Don't be silly, Mullah, they answered. This isn't a joke. This is serious. Your house is on fire. Jump. No, said Nasruddin. I don't trust any of you. Lay that blanket on the ground and I'll jump. <laughs> Wouldn't we just love the guarantees? And aren't we asking something absurd? We're just asking something absurd. It's not blind faith that loving kindness and compassion ask of us, it's wise faith that is rooted in the wisdom of our own experience. We know we don't need anyone to tell us what it feels like to live with a burden of anger and and fear and confusion in our hearts. We, We don't need anyone to tell us what it feels like to fear someone, to be afraid of someone, or to have someone fear us. We don't need anyone to tell us what it feels like to be hurt and wounded by the words or the actions of another. Aren't those the kind of memories and the imprints that we carry with us through our life. In truth, I think we often think way more about the people who've hurt us than the people we love. You know, we upset. we're married to these people. You know, we've kind of taken the, you know, they've got a permanent resident. They've got a permanent address in our hearts. You know, there we, and we visit them daily, you know, weekly. Nothing ever changes. We know also what it feels like to speak very harshly or hurtfully to someone, or to have people in our life that we just feel that we can't open to, that we avoid and reject. It seems that so much ease and happiness in our hearts and in our lives is also really related to the sense of ease that we cultivate in the world and in our life. And real, real ease, genuine ease, is really born of having no enemies of not having any enemies. Our commitment or our willingness to embark on a journey of understanding that really is dedicated to having no enemies in our life must be based on truly understanding the way that our planet is wounded, how our own relationships are fractured, and our hearts are broken by hatred and alienation. Shantideva, a great Indian teacher, once said, The mind does not find peace, nor does it enjoy pleasure or joy, nor does it, nor does it find rest or courage, whether the thorn of hatred dwells in the heart. In brief, there is nothing that can make an angry person happy. Unruly beings are like space. There's not enough time to overcome them. Uprooting these angry thoughts is like defeating all our enemies. My sense is that in our own experience, we also know the freedom and the release that is born of being able to forgive someone who has harmed us and to be forgiven by someone we have harmed. It's like breathing out after days, weeks, months, even years of holding our breath. The leap of faith that loving kindness and compassion asks of us is born of really being able to see the difference between the times when we're able to open and the times that we close to look at how our hearts and minds are when we dwell in resentment or anger or bitterness and how our hearts and minds are when they are really rooted in loving kindness, in warmth, in tenderness. When we really see the difference between those two, then we're asked to choose where we're going to make our home. Faith is also in the benefits of this cultivation. Knowing that the cultivation of loving-kindness of compassion has only one direction, and it's freeing our hearts from those closed and contracted places of fear and alienation. And to have confidence in the process, we don't know what effect it has. You know, we, we don't know if it makes any difference at all. But it is, I think, our confidence in the skillfulness and the wisdom of loving kindness and compassion that really protects us from being dissuaded. A couple of years ago, I went to listen to a talk given by a Tibetan monk in the town near where I live in England. This was the weirdest thing, the most bizarre thing I had ever seen. Because he brought with him to this talk all the instruments of torture that he'd been tortured with. And it was kind of like some bizarre show and tell experience, you know. And he would say, Oh, and yes, they put this on my hand and then they crushed my fingers, you know. And then when they put this ankle and crushed my ankle bones, you know. And, and he was just totally good humored, sane, sane. He was really sane. This totally equanimous guy, his face wreathed in smiles as he recounted these long torture sessions. And I thought, what is going on here? And then he proceeded to give this long talk on compassion and how, you know, he had only ever felt endangered when he felt in danger of losing his compassion for his torturers. And this is faith. You know, there is something so powerful. And it wasn't like this guy, you know, was some great saint or great yogi in the way he was. But he had such commitment that this was the way of healing and that this was the way of freedom, that nothing would dissuade him from it. I think the confidence that is really important is not only in the direction and the fruit of the practice, but I think also the confidence must be in ourselves, the confidence that we have the capacity to realize a heart without boundaries, that we have the capacity to realize a heart and mind of peace and of freedom within all things. Now we argue with that a lot. You know, because here is a place where often we are dissuaded because we think, oh, you know, when I'm more perfect, then I'll surely have a lot of loving kindness, you know, or you know, when I've got rid of this particular hindrance or this obstacle or this particular personality trait, you know, then I'll have a lot of loving kindness, I'm sure. And and we say, Well, you know, I've been angry my whole life, you know, or I've been impatient my whole life. So you know, it must have a future as long as it's history. It doesn't. It doesn't. Just because something has a long history, just because we have a hugely long history of of mistrust or alienation or estrangement or fear or anger, it doesn't mean it has an equally long future. Because we learn the possibility of transforming the moment. And I think it's so important to have that very deep-seated confidence in ourselves, It is never to imply, it's never to imply that the cultivation of loving-kindness means that we never experience fear or anger. There are times when our world can feel very unsafe. There are events and acts and people who unsettle us deeply. We do meet people who seem to be blinded by greed and Self centeredness and rage. But I must say that if the fear and anger we experience has some good at all in it, it is that it does have the power to startle us into a remarkable wakefulness. If you look at any moment in your life when you felt really angry or really afraid, no one has to remind you to be present. You know, no one has to remind you to be awake. They are highly energetic moments. In some ways, they are the most acutely alive moments we experience. It's what happens in response to the fear and anger that is so crucial. Because if we're not really knowing how to hold fear and anger with loving kindness and compassion, we can be driven into very unskillful and harmful acts. And then, of course, then we have all the waves of regret and guilt and blame to deal with. But if we can learn to tend those moments of anger and fear with loving kindness and compassion, if we can learn to be still within them, we can learn to be still within the agitation of them, then our wakefulness can be the beginning of words and acts and choices that can heal. We stay connected. You know, when, in those times when we are very angry or very afraid, we are, in truth, very connected. But I, I think it's very important to discern the difference between being connected and being imprisoned. The intention to approach and to embrace moments of anger and fear with loving kindness and compassion is what makes the difference between being connected or imprisoned. We can sense the way that we are imprisoned when we dwell in resentment and fear and bitterness, how closed and contracted we become. And we we can see that if there's no mindfulness, no awareness, how our connection quickly turns into aversion and resistance and disconnection. You know, if someone shouts at us, if someone blames us, if someone speaks really harshly to us, you know, we are suddenly so alert. We're suddenly so present. And our inclination is to move from that alertness so quickly into impulse. The impulse to close down, to withdraw, to retaliate. And then when we withdraw, we may have long left the person who shouted at us, but we're left with the echoes in our mind, the echoes of their words, the echoes of the, the image, the story, the encounter that replays in those endless, tedious loops in our mind. And it's like with every repetition, the story and also the anger and the fear becomes more and more solid. Reinforcing, what is it reinforce? It reinforces separation and it reinforces alienation. Now what happens if we follow a different path? If we bring into those moments of anger and fear awareness and faith and wisdom and care, if we follow the path of clear intention, we are undoing something in that moment and we are healing something that is broken. The Buddha once said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love. I must say that the habit of aversion and resistance to me seems a lot easier to cultivate and perpetuate in our life. But imagine how our lives would be if we were able to extend an equal amount of time and energy and commitment to nurturing the intentions of loving kindness and compassion in all those moments and circumstances when we're most prone to flee and to resist. This is not about a feeling. You know, it's not about having a certain kind of feeling. It's about how we are present. More and more, I think we sense the painfulness of those times of estrangement. And rather than being entangled in the complexity of right and wrong, we simplify, don't we? May I be peaceful. May you be peaceful. That is so much simpler. (laughs) Rumi once said, out beyond the ideas of right and wrong, there is a field, and I'll meet you there. It seems to me that we have to let go of a lot to find that simplicity. Perhaps one of the first things we have to let go of is the blame. One of my first teachers used to shout at me, more or less, on a daily basis, swallow the blame. Now, from some Western therapeutic standpoints, you know, that sounds like repression and suppression, and, you know, we get into a long story about if I swallow the blame, you know what's going to happen. And I used to have that argument, and he would just say, swallow the blame. Swallow the blame. And it's not about repression. It's about going into that field, which is beyond the ideas of right and wrong. To meet there. We argue with it because we fear if we swallow the blame we're gonna lose something. We're gonna become invisible or somebody's gonna get away with something, somebody's gonna walk all over us, you know. They're never gonna know how bad they are. But tell me, really think about it. Is blame really a place of peace and ease? Hardly. We sow the seeds of loving kindness over and over again and we learn to rest there so that alienation can become a stranger, so that the home of our heart and mind is radiant and easeful and open. If we dwell in fear and anger, it will only grow. If we dwell in loving kindness and compassion, make our home there, it too will deepen. And one of the hindrances to loving kindness compassion is not anger... But it is our attachment to anger. You know, if someone has wronged us or hurt us or offended us, we can be very attached to the injured self. We can be so attached to the injured self. We find ourselves becoming self righteous. And that self righteousness can even disguise itself as wanting to help another person. You know, loving kindness can even mask, I mean, Uh, Self-righteousness can even masquerade as loving kindness, you know. We're going to help this person get better. You know, we're going to sit them down so that they can really acknowledge just how wrong they are. (laughs) And other people are aversive, but I'm just pointing out what's right. Our attachment to anger can also be a very internal process when we have just withdrawn when we relive the events of hurt and pain, when we replay the conversations. In some ways, in blame, we have invested in another person authority over our well-being. In some ways, in fear and in mistrust and in alienation, we have given someone else the authority to govern. Our well being. Sometimes the blame is not outer, sometimes it's inner. We we tell ourselves, if only I was a better person. You know, if only I was more generous, more spiritual, nobody would hurt me. Now, nobody would reject me. But one of the first steps in loving kindness is to release all blame. Not just blame on others, but blame for ourselves. To see that nothing is healed. That we are just stuck in an endless cycle of pain and disconnection. Sometimes the people who hurt us, you know, they're on vacation in Florida, you know, and we're still stuck. <laughs> Hanh once said that anger and hatred are the materials from which hell is made. Releasing the blame brings us back to a simpler place—that there is suffering. There is a cause of suffering, and there is an end of suffering. Releasing the blame doesn't mean accepting or condoning the unacceptable. It doesn't mean becoming passive in the face of injustice. It means releasing the agitation from our hearts so that the words of healing, the the clarity of action, the clarity of response, that is very rarely born of an agitated, fearful heart. Clarity of action, clarity of response is born of stillness and clear intention. It's aversion and fear that leads us to disconnect and it's equanimity that allows us to be still and to stay present in what the Buddha called the world of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. A loving kindness is not a solution to pain. And it's not a guarantee that, you know, if we cultivate loving kindness and compassion, then from then on we're only going to have delightful and pleasant experiences and people in our life. Loving kindness is not a tool to make life go away. In our practice and in our path, we still meet people who are difficult. Events that are hard to be with, bodies at age, times when our worlds fall apart, but really what loving kindness and compassion teaches us is not to flee, is not to abandon anything, because abandonment is a pathway of fear, and it's a pathway that often makes life feel so impossible. I mean, we see that our, often our first response to suffering is to run, because it feels so impossible to embrace, or as if we have no way to embrace it. But loving-kindness and compassion hold at their heart the willingness to learn to embrace the impossible, to find what is possible in the midst of what feels impenetrable. This pathway asks us to look at the places where equanimity can be found, in the very places where we sense ourselves falling out of balance. What does it mean for us to stay connected, to open rather than to close? The countless moments in our day when we feel irritated, offended, frustrated with ourselves, disheartened, discouraged, blaming, what does it mean to open rather than to close? Those moments are the training ground of equanimity and they're the training ground of loving-kindness and compassion. It's what allows us to sense the possible in the midst of the impossible, to say this too, this too, changing our heart of the moment, changing our world of the moment. There's a story of a rabbi. It's a story of a very famous learned rabbi who was coming to visit a small town who was currently, there was a young rabbi there leading the congregation. And the young rabbi, hearing all the hoo-ha about this great rabbi coming to town, thought, well, you know, no way. I can't be kind of unseated here. So the clever young resident rabbi, he saw it as a great opportunity to show off and prove himself. So he devised what he thought of as a test for the old rabbi. The master was going to speak to the villagers, and at the right moment in the middle of the gathering, the young man would approach him with a tiny bird in his hand, then ask the question, Rabbi, I have a bird in my hand. Can you tell me if it's alive or dead? If the rabbi answered the bird is alive, the young man could crush the bird and hold it out for all to see proving the old rabbi was wrong. And if he replied, the bird was dead, he would open his hand and let the bird fly away, demonstrating his superior cleverness and wisdom. The day came, and the young man approached the rabbi with his question. Rabbi, you're so clever and wise. Can you tell me if the bird in my hand is alive or dead? The rabbi was silent for a moment. And then with tenderness, he looked at the young man and gently replied, It is up to you, my friend. It is up to you. Maybe we can sense that the key to healing conflict and alienation and struggle is also in our hand. Each time we meet the difficult and the painful, with loving kindness and compassion, we are in truth creating in this world one less moment of fear, one less act of harm, one less instance of alienation. And loving kindness and compassion then are not states, they're not destinations that we strive for but they are a way of attending to the moment, of learning to reduce the mountain of suffering. It's not complicated, but it is remembering. It is up to us. In that moment, it is in our hands. We take just a moment, quietly together,